Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones every Inside their hearts and understand that I will love them. I will love them while I still can. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host and founder of Alzheimer's Speaks, Lori LeBay. So welcome today. We're going to have a fabulous show. Today we're going to change up our format a little bit. We've got three different guests for you, and I know it's going to be a really um, informative show. But before I go ahead and introduce our guests, I, again, always like to let people know a little bit about Alzheimer's Speaks and what we're about, because we are always getting new listeners. And I have to thank our audience um, in terms of sharing us, because that's how people find out about us. So, um, again, thank you um, for all of your likes and clicks and shares out there. When you see this posted, it really is making a difference in others' lives when you share the program with someone else. So um, big, big impact. For those of you that are new to our show, Alzheimer's Speaks is an advocacy-based company, and we provide multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. We're all about trying to connect the dots and get people the services, products, and tools that they need, and it seems like they're hidden in cubby holes that we don't know about. So it's really all about raising voice and joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations about life with dementia because we need to remove the stigmas. The isolation just cannot continue. People need our help and they need and have the right to live with dignity and purpose. So um, Alzheimer's Speaks is really about teaching people how to live with the disease, not as it. And um, we know we're doing something right because ShareCare and Dr. Oz recognized us as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease, which was quite the honor. And again, that has nothing to do with me um, or Alzheimer's Speaks. It has to do with all of our listeners, all of our supporters on all of our platforms. Again, finding value and sharing the information. And it's really interesting. Sometimes people think, well, you know, my group doesn't, you know, we don't talk about that, um, so I'm not going to share that information. And I would pose this to you. Think twice. How many people do you know or have you found out um, that are dealing with dementia that you didn't know before? Open the door for them. And, again, just just click. It, it doesn't take any time. doesn't cost you any money, but you could change someone's life to um, helping them find the resources that they need. So, again, you know, we're just all about raising awareness and, and helping those with memory loss and those that care for them, as well as those that just want to learn more. It's time society becomes dementia-friendly. 
And, you know, we can do that in a variety of fashions. Uh, the Purple Angel Project, if you haven't heard about that, is a fantastic way to show your support for dementia. And you can just go to the purpleangel.org.uk and find out all about how yourself or you as a, your company uh, can go ahead and use this logo and help with dementia awareness. There are other organizations, too. Um, for example, the Alzheimer's Disease International is the organization of all Alzheimer's associations around the world. Um, so if you're dealing with Alzheimer's, it's a great resource. Uh, today we're going to have on the Lewy Body um, Dementia Association, which is just a, a fantastic organization, and I'll, I'll let uh, Angela tell us more about that. And there's also an organization called the Association of Frontal Temporal um, uh, Degeneration, or a lot of people refer to it as Frontal uh, Temporal Lobe Dementia. And those are probably some of the most common forms of the disease. And so, again, resources out there for all of you. Uh, many people also are asking me about trials. And, again, the tau trial that is out can be found at the Alzheimer's Studies com or you can look for the Alzheimer's team on Facebook and find information there. And then for a few fun resources, uh, Music First with Coral Health has downloadable music, which is a, a great way to be able to uh, kind of shift moods and distract. We all use music in our life. Um, why not continue that with dementia? And then Puzzle Me, uh, Puzzle With Me is an organization that has some fabulous um, larger puzzles, uh, smaller number, um, easier to hold, and um, and are pertinent to an older uh, older population as well. And then Jiminy Wicket's going to be with us with Jim Creasy, and I'll let him talk about his his organization a little bit later here. But why don't I go ahead and introduce our first guest here. Um, again, the Louis Body uh, Dementia Association is who Angela Taylor is, the Director of Programs uh, for. And they are a nonprofit organization dedicated to raising awareness of Louis Body Dementia and to be able to support people um, afflicted with Lewy body as well as their families and caregivers. Um, and they also, of course, promote scientific advancement. And they are, um, again, a, a charitable organization, uh, but they also focus heavily on education. Angela herself is, again, the director of programs for the organization, and in 2004 is when she um, joined the Lewy Body Dementia Association as a member, um, and then of the, uh, she ended up being um part of the board of directors when she was a caregiver for her father who also had Lewy body. Um, now she oversees all their programs and services and um, she has been with us on the show before and is just, I'm so thrilled to have her back again with us. Angela, how are you doing today? I'm doing really well, Lori. How are you? I'm doing great. It's absolutely gorgeous here in Minnesota, so very nice. I just want my house put back together. We're still painting and carpeting af after a fire, so I'm, I have boxes all over. But, but other uh -huh. than that, life, life is good. So. 
So. Well, I'm glad that you're on the, the upswing now and that things are starting to feel more like home. Yep, definitely, definitely. Well, now you started this whole role because, uh, you know, of a family member. Can you give our audience just a little more background um, in terms of, of uh, you know, however, you know, who it was in your family and, you know, how long they had it and and uh, what made you um, search out the Louis Body Association? I'll be happy to. My father was the person in my life who had Lewy body dementia, but we didn't know until he was diagnosed even that this disorder existed. Um, he started dealing with some what we thought were memory problems. Uh, when he was in his, I'd say, early 60s, he was having problems um, doing things that were more complicated tasks, um, <clears throat> working on his computer, um, dealing with um, managing a, a large household project, for example, um, a lot of things that required a lot of executive thinking or executive function skills like analysis and planning and um, understanding how things work together. And it just wasn't like my dad because he was an engineer, and dad always understood how things worked. So we were a little concerned, um, and at, over time just kind of observed what was going on they were very subtle changes at the beginning, <clears throat> just problems with programming a VCR, for example, uh, something out of the blue that we didn't expect him to have problems with. And over time, those things started to happen a little bit more frequently, and it became kind of more common. And at that stage of the game, we started to, to talk with him about uh, talking to his doctor. And it took us probably two years from the time we uh, – saw the very earliest signs to when we really um, were involved in discussions with his doctor um, because it, like a lot of disorders that are neurodegenerative, you know, the signs are very subtle at first. And eventually you realize something seems to be terribly wrong. So he was initially diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment. Uh, he didn't qualify as having dementia. He was still able to live independently even though there were things he couldn't do well any longer. Um, and when we were in to see the neurologist for the first time, Dad also explained he was having these nightmares. Every night he was having problems sleeping because he was having these very frightening dreams, and he found himself acting these dreams out. And the doctor said, oh, well, that's a, a common sleep disorder called REM for um, rapid eye movement, sleep behavior disorder. And I can just treat that with one pill at bedtime, and that will be fine and that'll go away. So we left the doctor's office thinking, okay, we're feeling a little bit of relief. He doesn't have Alzheimer's disease. But over the course of the next year, things continued to progress, and eventually he went in for more detailed neuropsychological tests, and those tests revealed that he indeed had uh, a different form of cognitive impairment. Uh, it wasn't memory-based. It was indeed... Um, uh, more related to um, planning and abstract thinking, and that it was more resembling Lewy body dementia. So that's when we really learned about the disease um, uh, in in trying to research what his symptoms were and um, getting this, this final, um, more significant cognitive testing done. Okay. Well, and it's it's not uncommon with any form of dementia to get misdiagnosed. 
Yeah, I hear that all the time um, it, because the variables just change and they, they mask so many other other symptoms and things. Um, but but it can be extremely frustrating for both the patient and, and the family, um, you know, as they're trying to go through this route. As far as time frame, you know, a lot of people say it can take a year or two years to get diagnosed. How How long do you think it took your family for your dad's diagnosis? From the time we first started talking to his family physician about what, again, we called his memory, it was probably two to three years because we didn't have enough symptoms to um, put the pieces together to identify Lewy body dementia in the beginning. In the beginning, it was just one or two small things. Um, and so it really took time for enough symptoms to manifest themselves and for him to reach the point where he was no longer able to live independently. You can't be diagnosed with Lewy body dementia unless you have dementia. So, you know, that first year was probably mild cognitive impairment only, and then the next year we were dealing with um, more significant changes, which uh, required he no longer live alone, and other symptoms started to become more apparent, the the types of cognitive changes, certainly this sleep disorder. And he had um, real variations in his uh, ability to do things from day to day and to pay attention. His alertness would change. And that's one of the the core symptoms of Lewy body dementia that that also helped to put the the puzzle together. Um, But the typical LBD family will see at least three doctors over the course of a year or more before they receive an LBD diagnosis, and ours was just like that. We started with the family physician, then we went to the neurologist, then we went to the neuropsychologist, um, and eventually that's when we got a, a formal diagnosis. Okay, okay. Can you tell, you know, I know you're not a doctor, but can you tell our audience, you know, what exactly is Lewy body? Um, you know, how is it different from, from Alzheimer's disease and the other other forms of dementia? I'll be happy to. Um, LBD, as we call Lewy body dementia, is a progressive brain disorder. Um, and like Alzheimer's, unlike Parkinson's, um, it, it will progress over time. Um, there are medications that are used to treat it to help reduce the symptoms, but that doesn't change the, the progression of the disease. Um, LBD affects thinking, movement, and behavior where compared to Alzheimer's disease, it's really more of a memory and cognitive um, condition at the beginning. So people with LBD have a more complex um, uh, array of symptoms generally earlier in the disorder. It is the second most common form of progressive dementia, and we estimate that it affects about 1.3 million Americans um, plus their entire families. So there are millions of people who are struggling with this. It, it may seem like it's a rare disorder because most people haven't heard of it. But the reality is is it's a relatively young disease as dementias go. It wasn't really well understood until the 1980s when they started to see how much more common it was. Um, so uh, the symptoms of LBD, as I mentioned, everybody has to have dementia. They have to have enough changes in their cognitive abilities that it impairs their ability to do everyday activities like hold a job, manage their finances, manage medications and things like that. In addition to dementia, people with LBD have changes in their movement that resemble Parkinson's disease. 
And that might manifest itself in um, muscle stiffness or rigidity where their movements become slow. Um, they may have changes in the way they walk where their steps become smaller. They don't pick up their feet very well. They might shuffle them. And changes in that walking or gait is very indicative um, of Lewy body dementia over Parkinson's, or over, excuse me, over Alzheimer's disease. Um, some people with LBD also have visual hallucinations early in the disorder, and that's a very big indicator that this might be LBD and not Alzheimer's. People with Alzheimer's disease might have hallucinations later in the disorder, but it's not part of the early part of Alzheimer's disease. And so, if somebody is seeing things that are not real, that's a big warning sign. Okay. LBD also, LBD also has this sleep disorder that I mentioned, REM, sleep behavior disorder, where when you and I go to sleep, we don't physically act out our dreams. Our body is actually immobilized. Might In our dreams, it might feel like we're moving, but we're not physically moving. In LBD, people will thrash and move about in their dreams, and um, when they have these dreams, they can injure themselves or they can injure the person they're sharing a bed with. And often they don't themselves realize that they are making all of these movements or talking in their sleep or things like that. So sometimes the bed partner is the best person to report whether they have the sleep disorder or not. Um, people with LBD also have varying changes of attention and alertness and cognitive ability that kind of waxes and wanes without reason. Uh, you can't predict from one day to another or sometimes even one hour to another what their abilities will be because they just seem to lose that ability to connect the dots on how to do certain things. So everybody with LBD has a slightly different experience. So um, we can't say that all people with LBD look alike at the beginning. And in fact, that's one of the reasons diagnosis is challenging because in order to be diagnosed with LBD, you have to have dementia plus at least two of the other symptoms, but it doesn't mean that it's always the same two symptoms. So a doctor may not see people with the same presentation um, and be able to recognize it immediately the next time because each person's experience is a little bit different. Okay. Now we do have a question from the audience, and they're asking how common is it for people to have both Lewy body dementia and Alzheimer's disease, and are there special concerns about adverse um, interactions between prescriptions for individuals that have both? That's an excellent question. Um, we're not yet sure why, but what we know is that when one person has some kind of neurodegenerative brain disorder, <clears throat> they seem to be at risk to developing more than one. And so it's not just Alzheimer's and LBD that can coexist together, but it could be Alzheimer's and vascular dis uh, dementia it could, or vascular disease where they're having small strokes in the brain. Um, it certainly could be Parkinson's disease and Alzheimer's disease where they're having two different kinds of biological changes in the brain. So most people who have LBD um, seem to have some degree of Alzheimer's changes in their brains as well. That doesn't mean that they have the clinical symptoms, that they look and act like they have Alzheimer's disease, but they might have a certain degree of that pathology or that brain disease at the cellular level. Um, it is uh, less common that people have pure Lewy body disease um, and no existing coexisting Alzheimer's pathology. 
Um, but when it comes to treatment, um, there really are no differences. So the, the more common form is is a mixed dementia, Lewy bodies and Alzheimer's. Um, but generally, one or the other disease process um, drives most of the symptoms. So they will okay. largely look more like Lewy body dementia, or they will largely look more like Alzheimer's disease, um, simply because one of the diseases is more prevalent in the brain. Okay. Why is it that we, you know, we just don't hear that much about Lewy body compared to, I mean, Alzheimer's. Everybody thinks every form of dementia is Alzheimer's. Um, or, you know, why is that? Well, uh, as I mentioned, LBD wasn't really well understood until the 1980s when they developed a new staining technique that allowed them to see how much more widely Lewy bodies, which are these little misfolded protein deposits, actually are in the brains of people with dementia. They they really thought it only affected a smaller number of people. And so um, from a diagnostic standpoint, um, you know, the cutting-edge research takes a long time to trickle down into everyday research or everyday clinical practice. And so, you know, it took about 10 years for the diagnostic criteria to be published by the research community after that. And then slowly but surely it started to gain, um, there was more physician education that took place on LBD. And now we're seeing people with LBD being diagnosed very, very regularly by their neurologists. They are not being diagnosed regularly by their primary care physician yet um, because, again, it's a more complex disorder. It takes um, generally uh, somebody who spends more time looking at neurological diseases uh, and has that at top of mind. Um, but the patient base of both disorders are very different. Alzheimer's disease is, uh, affects three to four times more people than Lewy body dementia. Uh, we, the Alzheimer's Association says over 5 million people are estimated to have Alzheimer's disease in America. So uh, it's simply a much more prevalent disease. And it also, the Alzheimer's Association has done a wonderful job over the last 40 years or so of raising public awareness about Alzheimer's. Um, our organization is much, much younger and smaller. So over time, as we grow, we hope, too, that we'll be able to make a lot more um, we'll be able to raise a lot more public awareness about Lewy body dementia. Well, great. Well, again, I thank you so much for being on the show because I think it's such a huge, huge need. Now, a lot of times people think that that um, Lewy body is Parkinson's. Uh, what, what can you tell us about the similarities and the differences between the two? Because I hear people say that all the time. Well, it's, it's the same thing. And I'm like, no, not so much. <laughs> <laughs> they are similar. There are definitely similarities. Um, for example, in biology, the, they mm -hmm. both have the same biological changes in the brain. But in Parkinson's disease, it starts in a different place in the brain. And in Lewy body dementia, um, it starts largely in a different place. Um, the brain stem is where, uh, or the substantia nigra is where, um, the Lewy bodies appear first in Parkinson's disease, and largely that's what drives motor symptoms. Um, so they have very similar motor symptoms, but in Parkinson's disease, it starts as primarily a motor disorder and then has other related symptoms. In Lewy body dementia, uh, it generally starts as a 
cognitive disorder that also has some movement symptoms. Um, but I want to highlight that Parkinson's disease also progresses uh, in older adults. Most people who have Parkinson's will develop some degree of cognitive impairment, and many of them will develop dementia. And this dementia, because it has the same underlying biology, is considered Lewy body dementia. Um, it's called Parkinson's disease dementia when it happens, but we refer to both um, Parkinson's disease dementia when the movement disorder starts first as a uh, part of the same spectrum as dementia with Lewy bodies, which is the official name when dementia starts first and the person then develops other LBD symptoms. Um, we include both of these clinical syndromes under the umbrella of Lewy body dementia. Um, but the difference is the order in which the symptoms appear. So in Parkinson's disease, you have motor uh, symptoms first that lead to a Parkinson's uh, diagnosis, and then at least a year or more later, sometimes many years, the person develops cognitive impairment and dementia, and then it's diagnosed as Parkinson's disease dementia, wherein dementia with Lewy bodies, the cognitive symptom is the prevailing early symptom, along with changes in uh, movement, perhaps behavior, perhaps sleep, and then um, over time their Parkinsonism will progress and get worse. And by the time both of these disorders are at end stage, the symptoms are very, very, very similar. In fact, the brains look almost indistinguishable at end stage in both uh, forms of Lewy body dementia. Okay, wonderful. Well, thank you. Um, is there... Um how do I want to say? Um, well, let me ask this question first. How did how did Louis Body get its name? Because it's kind of a goofy name. Everyone's like, where did where did that come from? Not it like is. Alzheimer's is, a, is a you know every known everyday name either, but it is. It's actually the name of the man who identified these little protein deposits first, Doctor Friedrich Louis. Uh, was a contemporary of Dr. Alzheimer's, and they both worked in a lab in Germany. And that was around the turn of the century. And he was doing autopsies of individuals who had Parkinson's disease. And he observed these little protein deposits in people with Parkinson's. It wasn't until many years later that it became known as a Lewy body. Um, other researchers began to call them Lewy bodies. He did not name them. Um, and and over time, those Lewy bodies then also became associated with this progressive dementia as well. And thus the name Lewy body dementia came about. Okay, so just another doctor's name. Okay. <laughs> it is. It is. It's a very cumbersome name. It's also a very cumbersome disorder. Mm-hmm. Well, it's 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 so challenging, um, you know, with the with so on so many different levels. What what are the most frustrating things that you hear from people that have the disease? What frustrates them the most about the disease? Well, I I think that the families struggle um, both because of the symptoms of the disease, but also because of the low awareness. Um, there's a tremendous um, need to have greater understanding of Lewy body dementia among healthcare professionals. And I think, you know, if you ask families what the, you know, that's one of the biggest challenges, that they'll go into an emergency room and people in the emergency room won't be familiar with LBD, nor will they know that people with LBD have some medication sensitivities that people with Alzheimer's disease may not have. Um, mm -hmm. 
you know, symptoms, LBD, one of the symptoms is hallucinations. But the very medications that doctors have to treat hallucinations can be very dangerous to people with LBD, especially one class, the older traditional antipsychotic medications like haloperidol cannot be used safely in LBD because those people tend to have very severe reactions to them, where a person with Alzheimer's disease would not have that same reaction. Um, So doctors have to be very careful in administering certain classes of drugs to people with LBD. And so low physician awareness um, outside of specialists has become a real problem. As far as living with the disorder itself, um, I think the behavioral changes really are are the most difficult for, you know, the families. Um, Visual hallucinations are one part of it, but people with LBD are also, they really struggle with delusions where they, they think one thing is happening that really isn't. They have a very firm, fixed belief that something uh, is occurring or that something has happened and they can't shake it and you can't convince them that they're wrong. And so that can cause all sorts of behavioral challenges and anxiety and distress in the family. So um, I would say the behavioral symptoms are probably some of the most difficult. Okay. Uh, Well, that that makes a lot of sense. Can you tell people, uh, uh, well, actually, you know what, we've got a caller on the line. Why don't I go ahead and pull them in, and then I'll ask my next question. Um, Let me get them live here. Hi, I've got a caller from a 215 number. You're live on the air. If you'd state your name and ask your question or make your comment. My name is uh, Michael Ellenbogen, and I'm calling to uh, speak with uh, Angela Taylor there. How you doing, Angela? I'm fine, Michael. How are you? Good, good. I'd like to thank, I guess, uh, what your organization is doing, uh, the Louis Body Association, and uh, th- my call today is really about the Purple Angel. I think you've heard about that, and I'm trying to understand if your organization is considering to come on board uh, with this particular cause. Uh, we're trying to get people from, I guess, all over the world to come on board to support dementia, no matter what type of dementia people have. And one of them, of course, is Louie Body, which we'd love to have your organization to support the Purple Angel and to stand behind that. We're trying to create one common goal for everybody, no matter what type of dementia they have. So I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that. Hi, Michael. Well, listen, I have great admiration for what you're doing with that program. I think that it's a a wonderful idea, um, and and really having a common banner is – really, I think, unites people and the experiences that they have, uh, regardless of the form of dementia. Um, I think one of the things we see all too often, as Lori alluded to, is that people really often think that all dementia is Alzheimer's disease. And I think one of the things our organization is trying to highlight um, really is that there are good reasons to look at the specific forms of dementia as unique entities because they have different treatment issues. They also have different impacts on the family and challenges. Um, so we are very interested in um, looking more at your program. Uh, we have um, lots of things that we're doing, and I think, you know, over time there, there certainly may be some opportunity for us to, to get involved. Um, I don't know that we've had uh, enough opportunity internally to really explore it yet. So we definitely look forward to doing that. Great. Look forward to working with you. Thank you, and congratulations to you on the the progress that you guys are making with it. 
Thanks for calling Thank in, you. Michael. Appreciate it. Well, I, 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 I'm a huge believer in the Purple Angel Project, um, and part of it has to do with my 30-year journey, you know, with my mom and the lack of education and getting people to understand that there are, you know, I, I personally think by using one symbol, we're going to be able to be stronger and and pull all the variables together so that people can stand up and apart, um, but yet still join hands and, and move forward. They're just doing miraculous things over in the UK with it. It's it's absolutely phenomenal and um you know gary i don't know if you're familiar with gary leblanc but he is doing a wristband band project that kicked off in florida that's expanding to other hospitals now in terms of getting hospital workers to understand when they see that symbol they need to dig deeper you know and that Absolutely. they need different skills and so um and it's not something that that says dementia on it it's just a symbol so it's dignified but it will alert and um you know help uh help educate people and to me that's that's the number one force if we're really going to become dementia friendly we we have to um band together the silos even though it's very important for us to have all these different organizations don't get me wrong there and and i think Actually, by joining the Purple Angel, I think it could really raise uh, the Louis Body Association profile um, in a lot of ways. Because I, you know, I talk to so many people, and they just—it shocks me how many people don't even know about the diagnosis, um, and they don't know to ask their doctors. And their doctors don't know. You know, they're not getting to the right people. And um, so that's my two cents. <laughs> If you wanted it or not. <laughs> right. Well, you know, but, we find one of the challenges is that so many people don't have access to neurologists. They live yeah. in small towns and whatnot. They may not have neurologists in their community. And, you know, that's one of the, the big challenges with the lesser-known dementias is that, you know, they, you know, they may be viewed as simply having Alzheimer's disease or if they have changes in movement. They may be viewed as simply having Parkinson's disease, where in truth they may have a much more complex disorder um, that the family would then be wholly unprepared to address. So, you know, I I definitely think that there's a great role for um, primary care providers to become very conversant in the top four or so um, causes for dementia. Yeah, huge, huge need out there. Huge, huge need, and um, we're getting there. We're, we're, you know, making our little sideways, uh, you know, angles in in on the crossroads here with the disease, little by little. But, um, well, can you give our our listening audience an idea of the progression of this disease? What what can people expect if they you know, and maybe they're worried about themselves. Maybe it's about a family member or a friend. What's the typical progression? That's a great question. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, um, the individual experiences with the disease are varied, and some people ha- can have a very slow progression. My dad was a great example. Um, we saw symptoms of LBD years before he got diagnosed, and he lived for about eight years after being diagnosed. So his his experience was at least ten years. Um, for most people, um, from the time that they're diagnosed and understanding that they may have symptoms for a year or two or three before they get there, they, the average lifespan is uh, about five to eight years. Some people live much longer. Like in Alzheimer's disease, you can live 
you know, 10, 12, 15 years, uh, even as long as 20 years if you have a very slow progression. Most cases are under 10 years. On, on a very small number of cases, for those who have the pure Lewy body dementia, um, <clears throat> those cases tend to go more rapidly. And they can be, um, from the time of diagnosis, as short as a year or two. And so getting that diagnosis allows you to be prepared for what the spectrum of lifespan might be. Um, there are no well-defined stages of Lewy body dementia yet. Uh, again, because the symptom, um, the symptoms present themselves at different times and in different severities. And so we can't say that the first symptom you'll always see is dementia. Well, that's not true. Some people start with a sleep behavior disorder 10 or even 20 years before having any signs of cognitive impairment. Some people start mm -hmm. with hallucinations around the time they start with dementia but might not have Parkinsonism for years. And so each case, again, has some um, variability to it. <clears throat> um, what I would say is that, you know, if you want to break the disease into stages, you kind of have that diagnostic stage where the person is living independently or transitioning to no longer being independent where you're really starting to put the pieces together. Um, they have a very strong quality of life in that time, but they are definitely going through um, uh, changes that require they get more and more help. The middle stage of the disease tends to be um, fairly challenging with the behavioral changes um, where not only are they dealing with cognitive changes, but also um, changes in movement, changes in behavior. They might have um, depression, apathy, certainly delusions and hallucinations are very, very common. Um, and they're still physically relatively strong. Um, and then they move into the later part of the disease where they start to lose that physical health, where they are uh, more stiff and rigid they don't have the strength to, to stand and walk independently any longer or to move from a chair to a bed. Um, they really are becoming more cognitively impaired where it's harder to interact with them and get responses from them. Um, and, of course, as in everything else um, that's a progressive disorder, you know, eventually they reach end stage and um, they are uh, in bed, and it's, it's a difficult time for the family. So... And that's the general progression of the disorder, but as far as being able to really clearly define those stages, research hasn't been able to do that quite yet. Yeah, and I, you know, I found that for, uh, I get really frustrated with the stages because I feel like it just um, pinholes people, and I've just seen too many exceptions to the rule. And, you know, there's the saying, when you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, you've seen one person with Alzheimer's, and it really is when you've seen one person with any form of dementia, you've seen one person <laughs> with a form of, exactly. uh, you know, dementia, and that's it. We do have another question from a listener, <clears throat> and they are asking, are there any gender-based or um, authentic, um uh, let's see, base differences between rates of uh, Lewy bodies. So roughly two-thirds uh, two of people with ADR women and African-American um, are twice as likely as Caucasians to develop, you know, Alzheimer's disease. So are you seeing anything that's, that's gender-based or, um, you know, in, in terms of our, our culture um, where... 
Yes, definitely. We we know that there are slightly more men than women who have LBD. Um, there was a recent study that really looked at a particular community um, over a period of 15 years to see how many new cases of Lewy body dementia were reported in that community by symptoms, not so much by clinical diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, and that definitely showed that um, that men uh, were much more likely to have Lewy body dementia in that study than women, um, and that, that they tended to be, those who had the cognitive onset tended to be younger than those who had the Parkinson disease onset uh, that later progressed to dementia. So that was very interesting. Um, we haven't had enough uh, research yet to really identify um, how um, race and ethnicity has, uh, mm-hmm. affects prevalence of the disorder. Um, DLB still isn't, dementia with Lewy bodies isn't as broadly diagnosed yet as it needs to be in order to be able to do those studies. Okay. Well, and it is interesting because, you know, people are always wondering, you know, about race and and ethnicity. I can't say that word. I keep wanting to say authenticity, <laughs> and that's not right. So I'm going to say race. It's just like I'm tongue-tied today. Um, but it is interesting, the breakdowns. But, again, we can't do that if we don't have the funds for the research um, to really dive into all of this and in, in terms of raising awareness. Um, here's another question. What are the... Um, possible explanations for men being more likely than women to develop uh, Lewy body dementia? Oh, boy. Any theories there? I'm not sure I can answer that question. Um, You know, what it may have to do with, um, you know, it could be something in the genetics because we know that different genetic variations um, can increase a person's risk of certain disorders, and so it could be that um, men tend to have more of a particular genetic variation. Um, it could, you know, it could be a combination of genetics and environment, and so, you know, exposure to certain chemicals or other environmental factors might be more common in men. It's going to take a long time before we can really articulate why. Um, but it does lend the question of: Is there something different in the in the pathology in the underlying disease that men are at more risk for? Mm-hmm. So we have questions. We don't have answers on that, to my knowledge. Okay, okay. And listener, if you have a theory, we'd love to hear it. You know, feel free to call in um, and uh, pose your question or make your comment at seven one four three six four four seven five seven. That's seven one four three six four. Four seven five seven. We always love to love to hear from our listeners. Um, well, this I am just learning so much today, and I'm and I'm sure our listeners are as well. I just find this uh, fascinating and a conversation that needs to be had, you know, on more levels. Now, uh, what types of of resources are available to people with with uh, Lewy body dementia um, and and their families? as well. Um, maybe they're separate, maybe they're together. Can you kind of explain what what's available to people? Well, uh, let me first start about what they need, because, and then we'll also talk about, you know, what, what they can find at LBDA. Uh, you know, obviously people who are dealing with LBD need to make sure that they have a really strong clinician, a doctor that they work with who they who is really willing to listen to um, their concerns and is willing to delve deeply to, to look at the diagnostic and the treatment challenges with LBD. Um, they're going to need a lot of support in their in their life 
the, the entire family, the person with the disease and their primary caregiver. Um, it's the, the challenge in caring for a person with LBD is pretty broad. It affects a lot of areas of that person's life. And so it can be fairly consuming for a family caregiver. So there's resources in their community that we really encourage people to look for, um, such as um, home health aids to help supplement the, the care that the family caregiver might give. Um, they might find that they need some respite care services so that the caregiver can take a few days off and um, maybe somebody else comes in to take care of the person for a few days or maybe they move into um, a temporary uh, care situation with a long-term care residence. Um, some people find adult day programs are very helpful so that the caregiver can continue to work and the person with LBD has uh, a supportive environment uh, during the daytime for socialization and activities if they're finding it hard to find meaningful activities at home on their own. Um, you know, certainly some people find that long-term care is needed. Uh, providing care 24-7 at home by a single caregiver might be um, more than a single person can do. But we really encourage families <clears throat> to build a support network, and LBDA can play a big role in that. Um, we have services that they can learn about on our website that allow them to connect one-to-one -one with other LBD caregivers um, and also in group settings. So we have, you know, a growing network of community-based support groups for Lewy body dementia or groups that support several forms of dementia that we um, collaborate with. We also have our LBD caregiver link, which is kind of a one-to-one -one resource where people can call in and leave a question, and we will connect them with another LBD caregiver who is also an LBDA volunteer so they can talk on the phone or by email and, and get some answers to their questions about what experiences and challenges they are facing at home. And it's just really, really nice to have somebody who really has walked in the same shoes be able to share back and forth with you about how they handled certain situations. Wonderful. Has a wealth of educational information, and I certainly think that's the other thing that families really, really need is they need to become fully informed about their disorder, and to be prepared to educate not just their friends or family, but healthcare providers in their community. There are many people who don't have LBD cross their path as their normal everyday part of their job, but if they're caring for your loved one who has LBD, you certainly want them to be informed. So you know, becoming. Uh, informed about the disease, knowing you're going to need to serve as an advocate and an educator, um, we can help with that. Okay, wonderful. Um, now, I know that you do some, I mean, you, you have all kinds of, of things on the website that I wanted to um, talk about, if you don't mind, because I, I think you're just doing some really, really cool things. Um, but before I get into that, we do have one more question here from our audience, and they are wondering how can people find Lewy Body um, Dementia Clinical Trials, or can people sign up for a registry um, to learn more, you know, about the, the future trials? Are there some right. going on right now? Well, there, clinicaltrials.gov is a great website for people to seek clinical trials in their geographic area. Um, the challenge with LBD is that there really aren't very many clinical trials out there that are specific to this disorder. There are clinical trials that are out there looking at related disorders or that are common to symptoms that are in LBD. And so for families who want to help um, advance the, the 
the knowledge of neurodegenerative diseases, we definitely encourage them to look at participating in clinical trials. Um, I think, you know, given the the um, the fact that LBD wasn't well diagnosed or wasn't well defined until the 1980s and 1990s, um, research still is making progress in certain key areas that are required in order to have clinical trials really be prevalent, and that are that includes um, being able to diagnose the disorder well. So we need something called biomarkers, and a biomarker is basically a biological indicator that you can measure. A cholesterol test is a good example of a biomarker for heart disease. You can measure it. You know when it's too high, and you know how, when you treat it that you can lower it. Well, we don't have those easy biomarkers in LBD yet developed that um, would be good targets for um, for drug trials, and so it's going to take more time before clinical trials are really um, prevalent. I absolutely encourage families to go to clinicaltrials.gov and to find trials in their area that their their family member might qualify for because, again, um, they might find access to um, strong uh, clinicians through that, through uh, you know, researchers are um, really cutting edge and that gives them an opportunity perhaps to work with a doctor who's much more specialized than somebody that they've worked with up until this point. Okay. Well, um, great, great answer. Again, just shows we need more funding. <laughs> we do. definitely do. <laughs> in, the, in this area, it just, uh, it amazed me, you know, when I, when I listened to the, the settlement for the, you know, NFL Basically, mm-hmm. is more money than than what we have going towards just Alzheimer's disease, which gets more money than than anybody in terms of dementia, you know, as a whole. And it, it's a sad state um, that really needs to need, really needs to get corrected. Now, um, if a family wants to get involved with your your organization, I would assume that. Um, you're looking for volunteers and advocates like the rest of the rest of the world with, with <laughs> organizations. Is that is that correct? Absolutely. There are a lot of things that volunteers can do with LBDA to um, help provide support to other LBD families and to raise public awareness and to help provide important resources to LBDA so that we can do things um, to, that again continue to lift the burden on the disease such as more programming for education, more outreach, and, and also for research. So, you know, we encourage people to go to our website and consider signing up for the LBD Awareness Movement. That is when, um, uh, in October, we've designated October as Awareness Month, and so we are mobilizing volunteers across the country to raise awareness about the disease in their community. And we've given them some great ideas on activities that they can do. We've given them some resources that they can self-print and distribute in their community. Uh, We've got a speaker's kit for people to go out and talk about the disease. So there's lots of things that are available. Um, And so for anybody who wants to get started with our organization, that's a really easy way to get started uh, because you can pick and choose your activities. But we have lots of other volunteers' uh, activities like running support groups, so we'd love to have more help. Great. Well, that's that's wonderful. I I think it's... um, you know, the only way we're going to make change is if people do step up to the plate and get involved. And, uh, again, this is a, a great cause, and if you've been touched with it, um, you know how important it is 
uh, to be able to make these connections. Now you've got you do some webinars and things for for people. Um, is there a fee for that, or are those free? Our webinars are free. We work with uh, experts uh, in the research and clinical communities to bring um, presentations to our um, and family caregivers and allied healthcare professionals on a variety of topics that uh, are relevant to LBD. Um, we don't have one currently scheduled on our website. Uh, we are just getting ready to start talking about 2014. We've just finished our last one for the year. Um, that last one was on caring for the family caregiver. And we really we worked directly with LBD caregivers to talk more about what their experience is and, and what advice they have for other caregivers. So we, we, we find that this is a very, very uh, useful medium. We actually post the webinars on YouTube. Uh, people can search for us under LBDA TV on YouTube and find um, our archives of our webinars. Oh, wonderful! Well, that's that's nice uh, to be able to to have that kind of that kind of access. Now, you also have a monthly newsletter that people can sign up for, and you know, I know sometimes it's hard because we get bombarded with things. But again, if you're in this space. What a what a better way to gain knowledge from an organization that specializes in this disease, or if you are working in the industry, because there's so many unknowns. You know, I would encourage people to to sign up for that, and again, get out there and like and Facebook. Uh, you know, um, you can help them on Twitter. You know, the whole nine yards. There, just go to the site. Everything is is easy easy to access there. Now, there's something called lbdstories.com. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that? Certainly. We put that site together because we wanted to provide families with a way to share their own personal stories and photos um, about what it's like to have LBD touch your life. Um, Mm -hmm. We really wanted to put a face on the disease, talk about true stories, um, and so we have uh, wonderful stories that have been posted there. We have some sad and challenging stories that are posted there, too. It's, it's really about um, the full spectrum of um, how this disease impacts our lives, the, the caregiving challenges, the emotional transitions, the shifting in roles, the, um, the barriers to clinical care and diagnosis. You know, every kind of story imaginable is out there. And so, you know, if people are living with LBD and they feel like, you know, they have something that they want to share with the world, we absolutely encourage them to go and upload a story and uh, add, a, add a photo. We, we want to share your stories. Okay, great. And, you know, people want to share their stories. That's one thing I've done on Alzheimer's Speaks where people can upload their stories or if they don't have a link or a blog or whatever, they can send them to me and I'll, I'll put them in uh, PDF form and push them out also on the the um, the website. And what I found is people are so appreciative to have their stories be heard and to be read. I, I just I cannot believe the comments that I get from people regarding that. It just it's such a healing process to be able to share your story. And I think that sometimes it's really overlooked um how beneficial that can be not only for the person writing, um, but for others to make them not feel like they're alone on this journey and they glean information um from those stories and really you you are passing on hope as a survivor living with this disease, you know, or any of it. Absolutely. It's really... uh, 
Mm-hmm. I know you can't see me. I'm sitting here shaking and nodding my head, saying absolutely. <laughs> um, you know, as you said at the beginning, there's such a sense of isolation when we are caregiving um, and living with dementia that we think sometimes nobody else understands what we're going through. We think we're the only ones facing some of these challenges. And in reading those other stories, we see shades of our own life, and we go, oh, I am not crazy. Look, somebody else is dealing with this. There are so many conflicting emotions that come uh, when dementia touches your life. Um, the grieving um, is is married up at strange times with enormous tenderness, moments of hilarity and um, depth of love. But it's also extremely painful at the same time. So, you know, those those conflicting emotions really... You know, they, they make us shake our head and sometimes feel like we must be going just a little bit crazy. And when we read those stories of other people and we share our own stories, absolutely, it's a healing thing. Yeah, it it really is huge. I had somebody send me a story, uh, or I didn't, they didn't, I didn't have them send me. They sent me a story um, this weekend, and I just, I was laying in bed checking my my emails, and I just have tears just streaming down my face. You know, it was just such a powerful story, and it was so beautiful. And so I asked, you know, is it okay if I share it? And I'll be posting it. But it was just, just this beautiful, beautiful, you know, story of caring um, for one another in the relationships. And just when you're at your rock bottom and then this gift appears in this connection and um quite powerful stuff so don't don't under uh, don't underestimate your writing skills um you know some people write poetry i mean it's all different types of things and you know it's not about being perfect it's just about putting it on paper and and sometimes you know or on your computer if you're not not a paper person anymore um but it's just a way to release you know, from yourself, and you don't always have to share it with people, but, um, you know, if the time is right, um, there are people that will want to read it. I can I can pretty much almost guarantee you that. Well, Angela, this hour has absolutely flown by so, so quickly. Um, but before I let you go, I do want to talk about, um, you know, Louis Body and your Scientific Advisory Council. Um, because I think that that's an important um, avenue that people need to know about as well. So can you can you kind of give us a synopsis of that, what's going on there? Certainly. Our Scientific Advisory Council is an international group of researchers and clinicians um, really on the cutting edge of Lewy body dementia. They are our eyes and ears in the scientific community. They do a tremendous amount of physician education in addition to their research and their work with LBD families. They are educators and, and working in universities and they are strong advocates for the disease. And we, we work with them to ensure that our materials are scientifically sound. They help us um, award grants to very promising researchers. They also help us organize scientific meetings so that we can bring all of the best brains together to really look at the disease and to say what is next, what's on the horizon. Um, really excited that the National Institutes of Health are putting together a strategic plan for the non-Alzheimer's dementias right now. What needs to be done to advance um, Lewy body dementia and vascular disease and frontotemporal dementias um, strategically at the national level so that all research um, is being done um, as methodically um, and as um, um, 
maximizing resources as much as possible, and we're very excited to see LVD included in that group. And a number of our scientific advisory council members were very involved in that um, project as well, so we look forward to seeing that um, that being released. Great. Uh, well, again, thank you so much for your time. If people want to donate to your cause or get more information that we've talked about, make connections, uh, what is the best uh, um, way for them to connect? Definitely to visit our website. They can go to lbda.org, and at the top there's a donate button. They can also put in lbda.org slash go slash donate. Um, even small donations, they all add up, and they, they are what allow us to do our work. Without those $5, $10, $25 donations, um, we would not be able to touch as many lives as we do. And so I can't encourage people enough to, to consider giving to LBDA. Um, the work we do has tremendous ramifications on LBD families, and, and we're very grateful for the support um, of the greater dementia community. Well, great. Well, you have a wonderful week, and thank you so much for sharing such wonderful information with us today. I, I really personally learned a lot, and I've been in this space for a long time, but um, there's always more to learn, you know, and I think that's one thing that we have to learn to accept in this space is nobody has all the answers. And Absolutely. it's always about it's always about connecting, and it's always about looking at things in a little bit different light, um, hearing different voices, uh, just changes our perspective, and uh, again gives us hope that we're not we're not in this alone. So, thank you so much for you know what you're doing and what your organization is doing, and I and I really hope that you'll be joining the Purple Angel Project soon. I think that would be a a great way again to to boost. Um, boost your visibility even more in terms of, of joining forces with that and helping people find you. So have a wonderful week, and I'm sure we'll have you on the show again. Thank you so much, Lori. We truly appreciate the opportunity to share more about LBD with your listeners and uh, really, really look forward to working with you again in the future. And I wanted to give you just um, kudos from me as a family caregiver. You have taken such action yourself to really raise the bar on what is needed to serve dementia families uh, nationally, and uh, it really takes every single person doing what they can, and you are doing some absolutely wonderful work. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. You have a great week now. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Before I introduce our next guest, I do want to um, just highlight some some things that you may have missed. So our last radio show was on brain nutrition and holistic ways to improve the quality of life. And our first guest was from Ireland, um, Christy Fleming, and we did have some complications. And so that first hour might be a little tough uh, to be able to listen to. The second half of the show um, was just wonderful with Darlene Kvitz and um, learned a lot of great information about brain health on that show. So our next show coming up on the 1st, we're actually going to have the Frontal Temporal Lobe Association on with us, and um, and that'll be an, a very, very good show. We also, if you haven't seen our last Dementia Chats, that's something that you might want to review. Uh, we talked about um, individual styles of advocacy and awareness, along with housing needs and costs of care. And then this afternoon, um, we will be having another Dementia Chats. That's a free webinar, which I do uh, twice a month on the second and fourth uh, Tuesdays. 
and that's at 3 p.m. Eastern, 2 p.m. Central, uh, and noon Pacific time. We'd love to have you there. Our experts are those with dementia, and so it's a great opportunity. We always have a wonderful conversation uh, between our audience and our experts. Uh, some blog posts that I want to highlight is there was a, a really a nice, elegant um, video done by uh, Mark Shapiro, and I, I titled it One Son, Many Voices, but he talks about his dad and his Alzheimer's disease and how it's affected now him and his dad and his family at large. There's also a great film that shares the global mes- message of dementia and giving hope. Um, and there was uh, some, um, I, I was very fortunate, Kathy uh, Bory, who is uh, an author um, of a book called Looking Into Your Voice, The Poetic and Eccentric Realities of Alzheimer's, has for a week, um, she's offering her e-book with a minimum donation of, of $5 and all funds are going to Alzheimer's Speak. So if that's of interest, you can find information on the blog there. And um, we are also going to be talking a little later today, though there's a lot of photos you can see about the first adaptive croquet game played at the Rockefeller Center uh, with Jiminy Wicket. I was out, out there with them on the 20th, which was really just a lot of fun. The last um, thing that I want to mention is the Griswold Home Care um, on Thursday, September 26th is going to be doing a live uh, webinar called Living with the Challenging Symptoms of Dementia. And again, you can go to alzheimerspeaks.com and over to the right-hand side, you'll be able to see the, the um, blog. Just click on that and scroll down and you'll find you'll find information um, regarding that. Um, for those of you that are new to the show, I'm just going to highlight a few things. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, just go to Alzheimer's Disease International for uh, the Lewy Body Association, which we just had with us. Um, again, that's right on this show page. You've got all of the, the contact information there. They're located on Facebook and, and uh, the whole nine yards. And then... If you're looking for a study, uh, there's a tau trial out. You can go to alzheimerstudies.com or the Alzheimer's team on Facebook, and they can help you uh, find that as well. So let me go ahead and roll into introducing our next guest. I'm really excited to have her with us today. Marie Marley is a really a sought-after speaker and author, and she has written a really uplifting book called Come Back Early Today, and it's a memoir of love, um, Alzheimer's, and joy. And the book has been a finalist in several competitions, including a prestigious Santa Fe Writers uh, Project Literary Awards. She um, also hosts her own blog, which has just a wealth of advice for Alzheimer's caregivers, and pub publishes a monthly newsletter for people caring for a loved one with Alzheimer's. The newsletter and the blog can both be accessed through her website, which is www.comebackearlytoday.com. 
Marie is the author of more than 150 articles on Alzheimer's caregiving, which um, have, some have been published in the Huffington Post and the Alzheimer's Reading Room with um, with Bob DeMarco and Maria Shriver's website as well. So welcome, Marie. How are you doing today? I'm fine. Excuse me. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you doing, Lori? Doing well, doing really well. Um, I'm excited to have you here. I went to go grab your book, and I, my house is just in disarray from this fire. We've got boxes all over, and I was out of town, and I realized I couldn't get to it. So usually, I like to have the book, okay. book right in front of me. And uh, but it's a, it's just a beautiful, beautiful book, and I'm excited to talk about it today with you. So. Can you start by uh, telling our audience why did you decide to write the book? Because I, I think there's uh, a lot of people in our audience, you know, think about it. That, you know, they, they think that they've got a story. Um, you know, what what prodded you to actually harness it and, and move forward? Well, it started as one thing and actually ended up as a couple of other things. In the very beginning, I started writing it after my loved one, Ed, who had been my life partner for 30 years. After he passed away from Alzheimer's, I started writing the book, and it was a sort of therapy. It was a kind of way of keeping him alive in my mind. But then as the work progressed, it became this immensely creative outlet for me. And I was able to be uh, as creative as I wanted to be and artistic and literary. And I studied a lot of books on how to write a book. And so it became that. And when I started out the book, I intended it just as a memoir. I wanted to tell this love story. I wanted to share my love story with the world. And Mm -hmm. then, but as, as the book was published and the reviews started coming in on Amazon, Many, many people mentioned how helpful it had been to them as caregivers, and other people mentioned that they wished they'd had it when they were caregivers. And so I like to say that I accidentally wrote as a resource for caregivers, and that's (laughs) how it ended up. And and I I changed my marketing strategy. Instead of marketing it, it is a love story, but instead of focusing on the love story, I started focusing on how helpful it could be to Alzheimer's caregivers. And, uh, in fact, I was very touched. I received a handwritten letter from a lady in Coral Gables, Florida, saying that since my husband uh, got Alzheimer's, I've gone to a lot of support groups, I've read some books, and I've attended a lot of courses, but yours was the only thing that gave me hope. And that focuses on the uplifting nature of the book, And it doesn't give advice to caregivers, but it models the solutions that I found to to various problems. And that's how it has been so helpful to people. Well, and, you know, that that gets to my point and kind of the whole purpose of Alzheimer's Speaks is I think people want to learn how to live with this disease. And I think that's what your book shares is that there there are, you, you can still have a relationship. It's changed, but our relationships constantly change. And mm-hmm. um, not letting the disease take that away from you. And mm-hmm. I think that's one of the, one of the beauties of, of your book. Um, it's, it really does give voice to the strengths that that relationship has, even in tenuous times. Um, that mm-hmm. can be really trying with us all. Um, 
Do you mind sharing with people, uh, you know, when you first maybe noticed something was wrong, you know, and it was starting to change with Ed? What what kind of symptoms did you see? Well, there were a lot of little symptoms that occurred over a number of years. And, uh, of course, I was in denial. And, for example, when he started mixing up names, I thought, well, he's just getting older And when he couldn't remember his own address, I thought again, well, he's just getting older and his memory is fading. This is natural aging. Then he got to the point where he couldn't pay his bills. And he always paid his bills in the evenings. And he was Eastern European, so of course vodka was an important part of his life. And I thought, well, he's just had too much to drink tonight. And Ed got lost coming to my house where he had been coming for 25 years at the time three times in six months. And each time in my deep denial, I thought, well, it's just a temporary confusion. And even when he was found driving on the wrong side of the road, which is where the book opens, I thought that it was just because he was driving after dark. His eyesight was poor after dark, and he wasn't supposed to be driving after dark. And so I continued being in denial until finally one evening there was an incident that was so bizarre, so strange, so out of place that I couldn't any longer deny the truth, that something serious was wrong with him. And here's what happened. He called me one night sort of in a panic looking for his scissors. And I told him to go look in his kitchen because that's where he kept them. And he Mm -hmm. said, kitchen? What's a kitchen? I don't have a kitchen. And I was struck. It was as though I had been struck by lightning. And I said, you know, Ed, where your stove is? And he says, my stove. And he didn't know stove any more than he knew kitchen. And I said, I kept trying to jog his memory of what a kitchen was. And I couldn't. And finally he said, oh, how silly of me. I do have a kitchen. But it only has clothes and shoes in it. And I said, no, Ed, that's your closet. I'm talking about your kitchen And I never Mm -hmm. could jog his memory. I never could get him to remember what his kitchen was. And that was the time that I knew for sure, and I had to admit and leave my denial and realize that there was something serious wrong with him. Wow, that had to be awfully frightening for you. Oh, it was terribly frightening. And I realized then that I was going to have to do something with him. He was living alone. And I realized that he wasn't going to be able to keep living alone. And that eventually I was able to get him to agree to move to a nursing home. And it was an outstanding facility that cared only for people with dementia. And it took mm-hmm. me months and months to get him to agree to go. And I didn't want to, I had power of attorney. I could have taken him against his will. But I really, really didn't want to do that. And so I kept. Really, it was a campaign of more or less badgering him every day to go to this place. I got him to visit a couple of times, and he liked it, and he agreed to go, but every time he backed out. And so finally, one day, he was so confused and so far advanced in his disease that he forgot his opposition to going to this place. And so he said, I said one day, you would be so much better off if you would go to the Aloha Center. And he looked at me and he said, who's stopping me from going? And I said, nobody. <laughs> and I I took him the very next day before he could change his mind again. The, the other times I had waited until he had 
I had time to get his furniture moved and things taken care of. But this time they told me, you know, you don't have to do all of that. Bring him tomorrow. Just bring him a few changes of clothes, and we can provide him with a furnished room until you can get his furniture moved. And I was delighted, and I did take him the very next day. Wow. Wow, yeah, yeah, those 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 moments. I mean, it's it's a you kind of look at it as a as a gift and then as a disaster as well when they reach that point of of um, mm-hmm. you know, something that they've fought so long. I mean, it it is a gift. You can move on, but then you just know that you're at a whole other level again in mm-hmm. terms of the progression of the of the disease. I remember going through that with my mom and it was a relief not to have to fight anymore mm-hmm. um and so how did he do when he when he went then was he was he good well they started him in what they called their assisted living area they had four areas and each one offered more care so as the people continued to decline they would move them from one area to another which was wonderful because i knew i would never have to move him to another facility Mm-hmm. They started him in their um, area of least care, which they called assisted living, and he lasted there for about a month. Um, oh, an interesting thing I should mention. The second day he was there, I was talking to him. I was visiting and talking to him, and he said, well, I'm going, to, I'm going home tonight. And I told myself he will leave here only if one of us is dead because it had been such a struggle to get him there. So, of course, he didn't leave. But he lasted only a month. Uh, He needed more help, and he was in the habit of taking his clothes off, all of his clothes, in the dining room, which, of course, he didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. And so they moved him to the next level. And he stayed there for quite a while, and then they moved him to their third level, and that was where he was when he passed away. But what happened, once he got there, he was completely transformed. Previously, he was drinking heavily, he was depressed, he had become quite mean and verbally abusive to me, and it was very difficult to handle. But once he got into the nursing home and they got him off the alcohol, of course they wouldn't let him have any, and the doctor put him on an antidepressant, and he had other people around for social stimulation, and they got him interested in participating in activities he was totally transformed into the most loving, lovable, sweet, adorable, happy people you'd ever want to meet, Alzheimer's or not. And so I was thrilled at that. And the rest of the time we had just a wonderful, warm relationship, even though it did change significantly as time went by. Okay. Okay. Um, well, I thank you for sharing, uh, you know, all of this and, and your your life and your love um, uh, with Ed. I, I just think it's a beautiful, beautiful thing um, to be able to do. In your book, you talk about Ed's reaction to little stuffed animals that you took to him. Can you can you tell our audience about about the stuffed animals? Well, the stuffed animal started as more or less an accident um, or happened um, serendipitously. I was going to visit him one day, and I stopped in at Walgreens to get some shampoo on my way. And on my way to the shampoo, I passed the aisle where the little stuffed animals were. And I stopped and I wondered, hmm, I wonder if Ed would like a stuffed animal. And then I thought, no, he'd just be offended that I brought him a child's toy. And so I went on and got my shampoo. 
But when I got up to the cash register, my heart told me to go back to the little stuffed animals. And so I did. And on a whim and against my better judgment, I bought him a tiny little yellow chick. And I got him the smallest one they had because I thought, silly of me, that if he got angry, he'd be less angry about a little one than he would about a big one. And so I mm-hmm. took the little, this little yellow chick out to him, and I put it in his hand. And at first, he didn't react at all. I had no idea what he was thinking. But I didn't have to wait long. Pretty soon, he held it up to his chest, and he petted it, and he kissed it. And he looked me right in the eyes, and he said, thank you. Thank you so much. I never had such a lovely present in all my life. And so I I was delighted and relieved. And I went out on a limb further and I said, would you like a bunny rabbit too? And he said, oh, I would love a bunny rabbit. He would be a companion for the little yellow one. And so mm-hmm. the next day I took him a little bunny rabbit, which he promptly named Adorable. Then I had to go out in the hall for a minute. And when I went out, I had to talk to one of the nurses. When I went out, I put Adorable on the foot of Ed's bed. And when I came back in a few minutes later, I saw that he had put Adorable on his pillow. And he looked me in the eyes again and he said, maybe I'm silly at my age playing with these little stuffed animals, but I really do love them so much. And so I kept taking him stuffed animals and he loved each one more than the one before. And every time I handed him one of the old ones, it was like it was the first time he had ever seen it. And uh, I, one of the things that I got him after that was a little puppy that breathed. It was battery-operated, and his little chest moved up and down. And he told me one time, the first thing I do when I come in my room is look and see if the little puppy is still breathing. And so I realized that we were having fun with these stuffed animals. And I finally realized that it was that just seeing him smile and hearing him laugh was more than enough to make up for losing our old relationship. And then I was transformed. And instead of being bored by my visits and not wanting to go because he couldn't interact with me in a way that was meaningful for me, I realized that I had to interact with him on his level. And so I was transformed as well, and I was able finally, after months and months and months, I was able to accept his condition. Oh, that's that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And it Thank is a you. tough place to get to, you know, but, but once you're there, it's, it's just like this, I don't know, I describe it as kind of soft and cushy and gooey, and it's just so lovable and so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I, it's kind of like, why why wasn't I here before? <laughs> you know, why couldn't mm-hmm. I find this yes. in my life earlier? Why did it take this? Because it really just brings you to this basic love and connection that's mm-hmm. just, you can't you can't even put into, you can't even put into words. Um, and it's... Right. You know, for our audience, I guess I would encourage you to, um, you know, watch for the signs of the little things that we do that have big impact. Because a lot of people may have just given the stuffed animal and not seen the signs and not taken Mm -hmm. them seriously. But you picked up on the signs and then just incorporated that in part of your life, which enriched both of you. And so I think that's one of the things we have to teach people is looking for the signs. And and mm-hmm. so much of the time they're they're just so simple. 
um, that we we tend to overlook them. What's one of your your favorite um, memories? You know, from when Ed had um, Alzheimer's disease. Do you have Do you oh, have one, one or two? Yes, I do. It was most definitely the time that I took him some cards and letters to look at that he had sent me. I, uh, when he moved to the nursing home, I put a lot of his belongings in storage. And I went out one day and I was going through the things, the furniture and clothes and personal effects that he didn't need. I was looking through the things to see what I wanted to give to charity and what I wanted to keep for myself and what I thought should be simply discarded. And I came across an envelope with my name scrawled on the front of it in his shaky handwriting. And I looked inside and discovered that it contained virtually every card, letter, and photograph that I had ever given him in 30 years. And I was so touched, it made me realize how much I must have meant to him over all the years, even though I knew it, but it was just sort of like icing on the cake. And so I decided, a friend of mine suggested that I take these things out and show them to Ed. And so I did. And I started with the photographs, and there were several photographs of us over the years. And the last one I showed him was a photograph of a woman standing behind him, and she had her hands on his shoulders, and her head was peeking around his looking at the at the camera. And he looked at it, and he said, oh, she loved me. And he didn't say anything else, and I said, what are you thinking? And he said, I'm thinking of love. And I said, that woman is me. He recognized me always in person, but he didn't recognize me in the photograph. I -hmm. said, that person is me, that woman is me, and I still love you. And he looked up at me in my eyes like he had when we were romantically involved all those many years ago. And I couldn't tell, honestly, if he was in the past or the present. And I decided Mm -hmm. it didn't matter. Yeah, good conclusion. Good conclusion. Because, I mean, I, that must have just made you melt. I have tears in my eyes hearing that. <laughs> you know, it's just yes, like, wow. It, it was beautiful. Oh, very, 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 very cool. There's so many precious moments, um, you know, during this disease process. And I think sometimes, you know, we don't talk about them enough. You know, we we talk uh-huh. about the the ugly side of the disease and the loss, but there's so much that is gained um, from the uh-huh. disease as well. That's that's just absolutely, absolutely gorgeous, and um, and that's it was a wonderful story. Now, with Alzheimer's disease, you know, people have their their moments where they're totally lucid, um, and and I would imagine Ed had some some periods like that too, where it was just very clear, and you wouldn't wouldn't even know. Right. Yes, he did. He had several, and they were always precious. and And I remembered them, and I treasured them, even though I knew that he would go back to his previous self. But one of the stories, as a matter of fact, I'll tell you a couple here. One of the stories was that my mother passed away when Ed had dementia, was living in this nursing home. And I told him about it, and he didn't understand at all what I was talking about. He said, no, my mother isn't dead. I just talked to her last night. Of course, he was 92, so he hadn't talked to his mother last night, but he thought he had. And so I let it go. I mean, I I could have told him that, 
I had done my laundry that day or fallen down the stairs or gone to the dentist, it would have all been the same to him. He didn't understand anything that I was telling him that my mother had passed away. But two weeks later, two weeks later, I was sitting with him in the dining room while he was eating, and I had decided to wear a black blouse and slacks every day for a month in mourning for my mother. And he looked at me and he said, you look so beautiful in that black blouse, even though I know you're wearing it for death. And that was his his English construction. Uh And I was just shocked. I couldn't believe it, that he had remembered for two weeks and that he had understood and that he told me about it. So that was one of the incidents. And there was another one when I was getting a new, I was in the process of searching for a new job and I had a job interview and I told him about it and he didn't understand at all what I was saying. It it was the same thing as before. He went back to reading the newspaper, which he was holding upside down and had no understanding of what I was telling him. And a couple of weeks later, I had an interview scheduled and I had to fly out to Kansas City from Cincinnati And I told him about it, expecting him to say something like, that lady on the TV is the Pope, or things like that that he would say. I was expecting that. But instead, he looked at me and he said, they will give you the job. You will get the job. I'm 100% certain. With all of your experience and your success over all the years, they will certainly hire you. And Mm -hmm. his voice was cracking. He was so happy that something good was going to be happening for me that he was almost in tears. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's that's powerful stuff. When -hmm. when you see those when you see those connections, Uh, were you Mm -hmm. were you taken back at that at all? Oh yes, I was very shocked. You know, unfortunately, a lot of people can't accept the fact that their loved one has this disease. And I think that's what stops them from seeing these beautiful moments and experiencing this love and hope and joy. But in my experience, once a person is really able to come to terms with the illness, then there's a transformation and then they can see the beautiful part of the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep, definitely. Um, now, sometimes, um, sometimes with with Alzheimer's disease, there can just be this, you know, deadly serious issue that arises. But yet, there's humor in the moment. Do you have any examples of that, or interacting with a person who's got the disease and um, and how it flows yes, from I there? Do. Again, I have several. Um, one time he, we were sitting together. I used to sit with him when he was eating, and I was wearing some earrings, and he looked at me. He always told me how beautiful I was. You're so beautiful. You are so beautiful. How beautiful you are. And frankly, I was getting a little bit tired of it, and I told him, I said, could you please stop telling me how beautiful I am for a while? And he said, it will be very difficult, but I will try. And then he looked at me, and mm-hmm. he said, can I say how beautiful your earrings are? <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another story. I was sitting with him. He was in the habit of stealing the spoons from the nursing home dining room. And after he had his meal, 
he would clean the spoon with a napkin and then he would wrap it in another napkin and put it in the breast pocket of his sport coat and take it down to his room. And pretty soon he would have spoons all over the place. And so the staff would come down and get them and take them back to the nursing home. But the next day he would start a new collection. And so they started giving him plastic spoons, hoping that he wouldn't find those appealing enough to steal. And it worked for a while, but pretty soon he started stealing those too. And so one day I was sitting with him as he was eating lunch, and he started cleaning his spoon to put it in his pocket. And I said, Ed, don't take that spoon. It doesn't belong to you. And he said, oh, no, I take them every day with no remorse. (laughs) (laughs) And just, again, so clear just, you know, oh, unbelievable. I think we've got a caller on the line, if you don't mind. Um, I'd sure. like to just see if they've got a question or a comment. Okay. I've got a caller from a 972 number. You're live and on the air. Do you have a question for us or a comment? I, uh, I certainly do because I know both of you. It's Carol Larkin. Oh, hi, Carol. Oh, hi, Carol. <laughs> a wonderful show today, wonderful show. I called to ask Marie to tell the story of the violin guy. Oh, yes, the violin concert. Yes. One of my friends, one of my friends, thank you, Carol. One of my friends suggested to me one day that I should hire a classical violinist to come to the nursing home and play a concert just for Ed in his room. And so I did. He loved. He always loved classical music, and so I did. And the violinist came, and he was wearing his tux, and I, as I had requested, came in, and he sat down right across from Ed, probably no more than three feet from him. And he started playing, and Ed was ecstatic, and he was smiling, and he was moving in time to the music, and he was singing some of the words to the pieces that he knew. And after the selection... Ed reached his hand out toward the violinist, and the violinist took hold of his hand. And they sat there holding hands and making small talk, and then the violinist played another selection, and then the same thing, they held hands and talked. And at the end of the concert, I asked them to sit beside each other on the sofa so I could take their picture. And if you... Too too bad that you can't see the picture over the radio, but... um, in this picture, Ed was looked so proud. He was so proud that the man had come to play just for him, and he is just beaming with joy. Oh. I love that story. It just, you know, it just makes you feel good, you know. <laughs> yep, yep. Oh, it is wonderful. So, how are things with you, Carol? Anything new in your area that you want to tell us about while we got you on the line? Oh gosh. Oh, probably. Both of you know this gentleman, too. Um, I want to tell you that I am now distributing books, the one that Max Wallach wrote, the one about the, you know, grandma putting her underwear in the refrigerator. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, that's my newest project. My, I bought a bunch of his books. And I am now distributing those books to memory care facilities in my area, um, trying to get them to 
give those books, well, not give the books, but show the books to the uh, children of the people who are, you know, living there, the residents, uh, for their children, essentially for the grandchildren. And I just started doing it yesterday, and the reception is just so fabulous. So that's that's my newest kick. Well, that's wonderful, Carol. Yeah, well, that's a that's a great book that Max wrote. Yeah, why did why did Grandma put her underwear in the refrigerator? Um, for those of you that haven't read it, I would encourage you to to uh, go to Amazon um, or contact Carol <laughs> and uh, order order a book through her. It's it's just a fabulous fabulous book that uh, is uh, for kids but has an awful lot of lessons for adults wrapped in it. And uh, just uh, done very, very well. Well, thank you so much for calling in, Carol. appreciate it. Okay. Both of you have a great day. You too. Thanks. Bye-bye. You too, Carol. Bye-bye. Um, well, that was nice of her to call, and I'm glad that we got we got another story out of you because you're just you're filled with such great great <laughs> stories. So that's wonderful. Yes, the the violin wonderful. concert was a special one. Mm-hmm. Now I have to ask, you know, how did you come up with the title for your book? Come back early today, you know, a memoir of love, Alzheimer's and joy. Where did where did that come from? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't think we've mentioned yet that Ed was Romanian, and he had come to the United States in his mid-50s. And when he came here, his mid-50s, not the mid-50s, when he first came here, he didn't speak a word of English. But he learned, and he learned well, and he learned quickly. But he still, sometimes his syntax was a little bit out of order. His sentences might be phrased a little bit unusually. And uh, one day when I went to visit him, he asked when I got ready to leave, he asked me when I was coming back. And he always asked me when I was coming back, and I always said tomorrow. Not necessarily because I was planning to go back the next day, but because it made him happy, and I knew he'd never know the difference. And so I always said tomorrow, and he always said, wonderful, marvelous. But that day when I said tomorrow, he got a hurt look on his face. And he said, what do you have to do that's so important you can't come back until tomorrow. And I was surprised. I didn't know what to say at first. But finally I said, well, when would you like for me to come back? And he said, today. And I said, okay, I'll come back today. And he said, early today. And I said, okay, I'll come back early today. And that's how the book got its name. And then the next day, I won't tell the ending of the book, the next day something very unusual happened. And it's very striking if you read about it in the book. Oh, a cliffhanger, folks. you got to go get the book, which just rolls us right into how do people get a copy. Um, is it best to go to your website or are you on Amazon? What's what's the best route there? It's on Amazon. And on Amazon, you can get the paperback or you can get the Kindle version. And just type in my name, Marie Marley, or type in Come Back Early Today. Or you can get the paperback from my website, which is, again, www.comebackearlytoday.com. And so you can get the the paperback either place. Okay, wonderful. Um, any any last things that you want to share with our guests at all? Yes, I would. I just, 
just thought of a little story here. I mentioned that Ed used to steal the spoons from the nursing home. Well, he also stole the little pillows, as he called them, from the sofas in the uh, lobby. There were not the cushions, but just the little designer pillows that they had there. And he always took them to his room, and the staff always went and got them and brought them back. And he would start stealing them again, and they would bring them back. Well, as it happened, when Ed passed away, one of the staff members had assembled most of his personal belongings in a special room for me to pick up, which was very nice of them to do. And I found one of the pillows there, and it was very touching and made me cry that they would have let him win in the end. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you, Marie, for, for sharing, you know, such a intimate piece of your life with us. That it's it's so helpful to hear other people's stories and um mm-hmm. your 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 love for Ed and uh is definitely apparent and the rich relationship that you had. Um I just thank you so much again for being well, thank for you for being, having thank go ahead. Oh, no, I just wanted to thank you again for, for just being with us today and, and sharing uh, sharing that with us. It, it it changes people's lives. I know it does. And, again, mm-hmm. I would encourage our, our listeners to, you know, go and purchase the book. Again, come back uh, early today, A Memoir of Love, Alzheimer's, and Joyce by Marie Marley. And thank you so much for having me today, Lori. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk about my book. Well, good. Maybe one of these days we'll actually get to meet live and in person. I get to talk to so many people, but I don't get to meet that many. Mm -hmm. I miss that part. So um, hopefully one of these days we'll meet at a conference or something. But you have a wonderful week. Okay, bye now. You too. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. I'm going to go ahead and introduce our, our next guest who is uh, James Creasy, and he's he was just on the show um, the other week, but we have him back to talk about Jiminy Wicket in the World Cup at the Rockefeller Center, um, which occurred uh, September 20th, just this last Friday, and he was out there raising awareness and funds for his, um, his uh, through Hoops for Hope, which is an intergenerational um Alzheimer's-based croquet program for high schools and colleagues and senior communities. So, James, how are you doing today? Oh, Laurie, I am doing well, thank you. Pleasure to talk with you again, and what a delight it was to have you there at Rockefeller Center with us in Manhattan. It was very fun. It was a fun, fun event. Um, lots of pictures and, and video. You had uh, a lot of uh, variety in terms of people who participated. Can you tell us who all was was part of uh, part of the event? Oh, I, I, I'd love to. Of course, you were, and I can't tell you thank you enough for all that you did to help push out our messaging through the social media. You know that I don't know how to do that. It was great to have someone as competent as you who could take that bull by the horns and get on with it. So thank you. Um, We had the world's largest maker of carpet provide to us the artificial grass that we played on. Uh, A big thank you goes out to Bolu of America for donating the carpet 
that made it possible for us to have a lovely green spot right there in front of the, the uh, Prometheus fountain in Rockefeller Center, where in the wintertime there is that iconic ice rink and the big Christmas tree and everything. So thank you, Bolu. George Bradenberg of Us Against Alzheimer's was also one of our sponsors, and it was a pleasure and a privilege to have Ginny Bigger from Us Against Alzheimer's coming down, uh, up, I should say, up from Washington, D.C. to join us. And also our good friends, uh, Tim Armour, Executive Director at Cure Alzheimer's Fund and his crew, including Henry McCants and Rudy Tanzi and those folks. They were also helping to sponsor and underwrite the event, although they weren't able to be there in person from Boston. We had, I was expecting, two young ladies from the Sigma Kappa sorority. We had about ten. They were hilarious. They loved it. They were so wonderfully engaging with the seniors, the senior citizens who showed up. It was a pleasure to have their youthful, uh, young womanly energy on the court. Uh, we had Carol Steinberg and Amanda Secors from the Alzheimer's Foundation of America. We had Michelle Wang from the Alzheimer's Buddies Program at Harvard College up in Boston. We had some seniors with Alzheimer's disease from Hearthstone Alzheimer's Care in Manhattan. And a number of folks from Brookdale Senior Living Community called Hallmark in Battery Park. We had the executive director of the National Croquet Center in West Palm Beach. We had the winners of the United States Collegiate Croquet Championship. And we had um, one of the, yes, indeed, the United States does have a croquet team, and we had David Maloof, member of the United States Croquet Team. We had Laurie LaBay from Alzheimer's Speaks, We've mentioned her talent already. We had uh, Dr. Jeannie Pritchett, the international medical advisor to the Jiminy Wicket Initiative. And we had Sydney Oswald from South High School. South High School and Sydney Oswald were the very first to ever engage the Jiminy Wicket Through Hoops to Hope program in an educational institution. South High School in Denver has a special place in my heart, and so does Sydney. And in honor or it, with gratitude to her for what she kicked off at her high school less than a, a year ago, she had the privilege, the honor of uh, hitting the first croquet ball ever at Rockefeller Center in New York City. Um, my gratitude to all participants. That's our kind of list. It's quite extensive, yeah, it was, really. Yeah, it was. There was a lot, a lot of people, a um, lot of activity. Um, very, it was uh, very fun. Um, and Sydney was so cute, and uh, hitting that first ball out, and just, I think she was surprised at the impact that she had as well, um, in terms of what it is she she did. Um, for yeah, a young yeah. kid, that was that was a big step, making a huge difference, and so um, you could just see her kind of bubbling with with joy. I also saw the um, 
the people from the Croquet Associations, both New York and National, were extremely impressed um, with uh, with how this went. And you had um, John Zeisel and his organization out there um, and people from his home that were actually playing croquet. And it was just so much fun to see them engaged and, and watching, watching them. We had, um, we had Stan, 92 and a half years old, came to play croquet. He didn't and, want to stop. Uh, for him, <laughs> he did not want to stop. For him, it was, a, I think it, um, I think it brought back memories for him of playing golf, and he took to this game in moments and was playing in a style that was more reminiscent of putting than it would have been of croquet. And, of course, that's absolutely fine because what we're trying to do is, is create a safe, playful environment for social engagement, cognitive stimulation, and physical exercise, and croquet provides all of that. And if, for him, his adapted way of doing it is to play by himself as though he were putting without actually ever sinking a ball down a hole, because there are no holes in a croquet court. They're just hoops, and it stays on the surface. That was fine. Laurie, before we talk about anything else, I want to say one very special and one last very big thank you to two dear people Longtime friends of mine, Roy and Faye Whitney, and the Roy and Faye Whitney Family Fund, who a year ago said, let's see if you can create a proof of concept that Jiminy Wicket and intergenerational high school and college engagement with seniors is something that could work. Roy and Faye have supported this effort from its inception, and... Um, they hold a very special place in my heart that's full of gratitude for what they've helped to make possible. And this is a milestone for us as we now take what we've proven um, in, 20, in 2012, 2013 high school year and move it into 100 high schools and colleges across the country in the 2013-2014 school year. Well, that's that is wonderful to to have people like that that can see the vision and um, absolutely, and, you know, help support this. It's it, it definitely is needed. So, yeah, I thank them too because this is really a very fun game. I haven't had a chance to talk to our um, memory cafe. They played this Saturday, and I'll see them all tomorrow and hear all about how oh, how they went. But I know that they yep. absolutely loved playing the game um, when we played this last spring, and we're all looking forward to getting together again uh, to play to play once again. It's very very Good. fun. What what kind of um, feedback did you get from people? What what were you hearing? I was just hearing all kinds of positive things, and um, you know, people oh, were Laurie, taking pictures. Laurie, we've got right one left. metric by which we measure the effectiveness of what we're up to: SPH miles per hour and we counted a lot of them mm-hmm. hundreds and hundreds of smiles that's the first measure of feedback even in the post-verbal silence and confusion of this disease smiling is a way to indicate pleasure of engagement pleasure of being with people even when I can't put the sentence together to say I'm liking what we're doing Smiling indicates it, and we saw a lot of that. The mm-hmm. feedback from 
from Harvard, from the Alzheimer's Foundation, from the participants in the senior living communities, the, the croquet people. I think you caught a number of those on some of the videos where I think really everybody is hoping that we'll do this again next year, but there's no reason we can't be doing it in the meantime, and as you know, we are. Um, mm -hmm. 100 high schools and colleges coast to coast will keep this moving. Uh, but the feedback was wonderful, very, very positive, and like the high schools and colleges across the country, the common statement that I hear more than any other is, wow, wow, that was fun. When can we do it again? Well, we're actually already cooking up some plans for next year and some more activities right here in Manhattan with an, uh, an initiative called Aging in Manhattan. We'll see where that goes, and we'll keep you posted on our developments with that. Wonderful. Well, that's great. Now, James, how do people get a hold of Jiminy Wicked if, if they want to learn more yeah. information? Yeah, go to our website. Very simple, JiminyWicket.org. And there's a button there to connect with us. And there's plenty of information. There's some videos, some stories, descriptions of our programs. JiminyWicket.org. Okay, wonderful. Well, I appreciate you being with us today and giving us the update of your event. It was uh, it was a lot of fun and a pleasure to be out there with you um, at oh, Rockefeller you. Center for your um, inaugural event there. So you have a wonderful week. And for those of you that are interested in learning more about this adaptive croquet game that is wonderful for all ages, um, you know, I highly recommend it uh, for families, for communities, for school systems. Uh, it's absolutely endless um, how this game can be utilized. So um, please go ahead and... Um, Go to JiminyWicket.org, and James would be glad to talk with you, I'm sure. Laurie, thank you so much. Okay. Talk soon. Bye now. Bye-bye. In wrapping up the show, again, I just want to thank our, our guest today. Uh, again, we had Angela Taylor with the Louis Body Association, Marie Marley, um, one author of a, just a gorgeous book there, and then uh, James Creasy with the Jiminy Wicket Organization. Again, if you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, look for Alzheimer's Disease International, and you'll be able to uh, find the one closest to you. If you are, you know, if you're interested in Lewy body dementia, again, we talked about them today. Please check out their site. And next week, we're going to have the Frontal Temporal um, Degeneration Association on our Frontal Temporal Lobe uh, Dementia is what most people call it. Um, you know, we'll learn more about that disease next week. If you're looking for some some games and some fun, uh, remember Music First with Coral Health. You can take it on the road. It's now an app with you. And Puzzle With Me um, has uh, great, great tools to sit down and engage and to be able to work together. And last, if you're looking for a trial, there's the Tau Trial. You can go to Alzheimer's Studies. Uh, dot com, or you can go to the Alzheimer's team. 
Last, I'd like to mention, uh, don't forget about the Alzheimer's Speaks resource directory. We'd love for you to join us on that site and to be a member. It's really easy. Just go up to the Partnering Options button, and you can go ahead and register as a member. There you'll be able to um, go ahead and upload free tools. But you can also put in resources, and there's no charge. So if you're an individual or a business and you found a, a great tool, product, or service you think needs to be shared with the world, it's very easy to do. And I would highly encourage you to be part um, and help us share share with the world what is out there. Um, it takes all of us. Uh, to shift our dementia care culture, and, and we're making we're making ground here. So until next week, um, I will talk to you soon, unless I see you this afternoon. If you join us on Dementia Chats, that'll be starting at 3 p.m. this afternoon Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Central, noon Pacific, and 8 p.m. London Time. That's where I interview. People with dementia, they truly are the experts, and we really have a lot of participation from our audience in those. If you can't make it, that will be uh, recorded, and I will be posting that link later on. So thanks again, and have a wonderful week. God bless. Bye. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families, too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.